Okay, so let Mr. Mitt. First question. What are you? Seriously. What what are you? You're Mr. Met. I see that. Double zero, Mr. Met. But what are you? Are you are you a, a baseball that a child wished to become his only friend and then you're the result? Maybe? Was that your origin? Could be. Somebody like you ever see that movie Big with Tom Hanks? Right? You seen that? Yes, he made a wish and it came true. I think a child might have made a wish and some Christmas magic got involved and then you were the result. Uh, well, are you are you kind of like Frankenstein's monster? Are you the result of, of a science experiment that went just too far? Was somebody messing around? <laughs> exactly. Oh, maybe you were. Look at that. Terrifying, Mr. Met. Terrifying. Can I do something? I've always wanted to do. Oh, look at that. Delightful. And one more time. Ready? Oh, Mr. Met, he got all coy. <laughs> now, you know what? I'm just noticing something. They give you, well, it's an enormous hat, but it's still not big enough for you, Mr. Met. You ever ask for a bigger hat? Yeah, one that fits, right? Must be uncomfortable. Because I imagine they have, they have to glue that one on or staple it onto your head. Which is it? Staple or glue? Either way, doesn't matter to you. As long as it stays. I, under, I now understand, Mr. Met, which is making me worry. Now, uh, here's uh, if I can get uh, serious with you for a moment. Why are you so emotionally shallow that you require the affection of children? What's that all about? Ah, you see? Uh-oh. Yeah, we had a... We had a moment here. It's like a Barbara Walters thing now. I made Mr. Met cry. So what is that all about? Are you better now? He got better. He wiped the tears away. <laughs> you know what? I use the, I call baseball games, but you know what I'm enjoying more? Calling what you do. I'm really... Yeah, you pointed at me. Yeah, you got it. Yes, thumbs up. See, it's, it's fun. Try it at home. All right, well, thank you, Mr. Met. It's been fantastic. Yeah, no, I enjoy... Or you want to hug again? All right. All right, well, let's hug it out. Okay, Mr. Met. Okay, all right, Mr. Met. Okay, all right. No, we're... Okay, we're done. Ah, oh, man, he's doing it again. I can't, you know... Fool me twice, shame on me, Mr. Met. What are you... Let it go. It's creepy now. It's weird. Mr. Met. Ah, you see, that's why I don't like Mr. Met. He's all over me. You're handsy, Mr. Met. Lord, look at him now. He's celebrating his victory. Yeah, terrible. Mr. Met, double zero, Mr. Met. Give it up for him. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, half man, half podcast machine. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, Sam Kakalaki, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program. That I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Want to welcome my loyal Seamhead audience back for the second show of the second season here at Backwards K Pod, as well as any of you new pod servers who may have caught this wave 
and decided to barrel up and check us out, welcome in. Thank you. If you are new here, Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. I'm on all of them. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. Or you can check out my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear any and all of my shows and always expanding catalog that we've done here at BKP. Backwards K-Pod is the place where we not only enjoy the progressive and still evolving nature of the game, but we celebrate the game going forward by examining baseball's deep history of baseball. From the Boston Bean Eaters, who would eventually become the Atlanta Braves, all the way up to the bio of the recently retired icon, Albert Pujols. I mean, I've covered the legendary, the tragic, the moments, the scandals, the pop culture. I don't really need to brag about what we've accomplished here, one, because I'm only getting started. This year, I'm going to try adding new, uh, you know, innovative features to uh, highlight the show, show it off a little, you know, and build upon what we've uh, built so far in the first year. Speaking of which, uh, I'd like to make a couple announcements before we jump into this week's show. First of all, the show is now in the process of expanding and spreading our wings. All these shows in my archives have pretty much 100%, you know, written, directed, and mixed by U.S. Truly. And I've enjoyed it much. I'm grateful for everyone who supports BKP, of course. But, you know, it's a lot of work. You guys know I, I don't take myself seriously, but I do take the work seriously. And every show, I'm striving uh, for credibility through my work. So, actually for the first time in seven years of this podcast endeavor, I, I'm going to now have an in-studio producer with me. I finally have my own Baba Bowie, for Christ's sake. He's going to be with me through this journey, and he'll be helping me with, you know, everything on the production side of this show. We're also going to be doing uh, in-studio videos. We're going to put those out on social media, and all kinds of things are coming together in the BKP universe, which is great for me because many of you know about, you know, my health complications, and, you know, I'm not whining. I'm, I'm in the fight for sure, but, but having him here with me will probably add time to my life, so he can help me with this load. So, let me tell you a little background on this dude. You know, he lives down here in beautiful Pauly's Island, South Kakalaki, God's country. He's a transplant from Dallas, Texas. He's bright, he's young, which I'm real excited about. He's going to be opening a TikTok page. In fact, it's pretty much in the works. We're just trying to get verified. Uh, he's a diehard Cowboys, Rangers fan. Uh, he's a true Texan. Everything is big. He stands about 6'6". Six, six. I don't know what, what how to find out what, how big he is. He, he drives a huge Hemi engine American fucking truck. I mean, you know, the dude is a flat out beast on the links. None of you want any of that. I, I promise you. I'll put money on this kid. And our relationship, it started out innocent as he was telling me he, he was a Rangers fan. So, of course, I directed him to our blockbuster Nolan Ryan show. And the next time we saw each other, he basically looked at me and he said, I'm in. I, you know, I, I didn't even offer the kid anything at this point. But he said, look, I'll help you do anything for this show as long as, you know, my time is permitting. Now, that was about six weeks ago. Unfortunately, you know, he had a little car rag, broke his wrist, he had all kinds of surgeries, screws added to it, totaled the whip. So we had to put the things on hold, you know, which was kind of good for me because after all that, he was... I, I was I was happy that he was still seriously interested in doing it after all that that happened. So, and here's the thing, folks. I've had people say they would help. I, I see them a couple times, and then they fall off. You know, phone calls. You know, stop happening. I I don't expect anyone to invest in this show more than me. I promise you, I don't. But I need consistency and communication for this to work. And it seems like my guy here, he's on point with that. I mean, you know, we 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 flow off each other. So. He's been here at the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex a few times, learning the board, soundbite. Uh, I'm going to give him a shot and some ownership here at uh, Backwards K-Pod. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to the new executive producer in training. Uh, Mr. Gage, you know, like a 12-gauge. I love him already. He's just a badass six foot six dude named Gage. I mean, what's not left to like, right? That's my boy, Gage Dean. What's up, Gage? How you feeling, buddy? I'm feeling pretty good, man. You got um, some butterflies in your stomach right now? No, I'm feeling good. I'm excited. Awesome, you know? man. Awesome. I love baseball. I love talking, you know? And um, 
But, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the experience of learning more about the history of baseball and different organizations other than the Texas Rangers, right you know, on. broadening my horizons there and whatnot. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you know, I'm excited to learn and I'm excited to be here. And um, That's awesome, man. I'm so glad to have it on the team. And before we came on... You know, I was asking you. You know, you know. Of course, you're in Texas. You're six foot six. I know you played football. Of course, I mean that's that's you know that's God given in Texas, right? But uh, you were also telling me you, you played a little baseball. Yeah, you know, what was that? You were telling me. Yeah. So, um, you know, my whole life grew up playing football. It was you play football, played a little basketball, but wasn't wasn't that into it. Even though I'm so tall. <laughs> um, but it was football from day one, and then freshman year. Our baseball team was about to get cut because they didn't have enough players to mm. play. We were, like, having problems fielding against other teams. Wow. And so I, I played quarterback. I have a I had a pretty good arm throwing the football, so they gave me a shot throwing the baseball. Um, little rusty at first. They were telling me, you know, I'd be throwing an inning here or there, you know, helping out relief and whatnot. They didn't expect a whole lot. I didn't expect a whole lot, but started throwing the baseball few practices, practice for a few weeks, and uh, found out I was actually pretty damn good at it. <laughs> um, Bringing the heat. Uh, What'd you have, like a ride? I, I see you as like this ride and cut fastball kind of guy. What was your bread and butter pitch? No, I, threw a, I threw a four seam mm. first pitch every time almost. Smoke. Smoke. Four, so I threw, I threw a two seam two that had a little movement to the right on it. Right on. Um, kind of dropped a little bit too. I uh, threw just a good old classic changeup, just right into the palm of the hand. That's awesome, dude. Um, threw a curveball, threw a slider, more as I like developed into it. Right. Uh, played JV my freshman year. That's uh-huh. the first time I ever really touched a baseball. Uh-huh. Um, and then sophomore year, I got moved up to varsity. Can't hit worth anything. <laughs> a, true a true pitcher. A true pitcher. Played a little first base, got pretty good at that, too. Um, nothing crazy though, no college offers or anything, but I definitely fell in love with the game and was able to, um, you know, fall in love with the Rangers through playing baseball. Okay. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't be here today without it. That's awesome, man. Well, I gotta tell you, welcome aboard. I'm so glad to have you on here, man. You know, you know, we, we see each other often at our day job and, you know, we cut up and, you know, we talk about a lot of things and, uh. I look forward to this. I, I really, really do, man. It's good to take some of this out of my hands. Uh, I've done so much on this show as far as, you know, writing, production, all that. And it's good just to, you know, have someone inside the studio with me to help me go through this. So, um, you know, look, Seamheads, bear with us for the next couple of shows. I'm going to try to engage how to handle his new produ- producer responsibilities. We may have a few live mistakes, but you OGs know, man, I'm okay with that, as I never dub over in, like, these post-production deals like a lot of these podcasters do. I run it like a true guerrilla radio station. I think m- mistakes are how you learn, and uh, I've certainly made my share in pods, and, and, uh, and I never cover them up. By putting it out there as is, you're learning to track peace without a net brother and that's how you learn by fucking up so just learn from your mistakes and we'll get through with this the next couple of shows all right bro yes sir let's do it all right man so here we go but look wait a minute wait a minute i also have another thing going on in the bk universe now now i told you i will never charge you for the content here i'm coming through every tuesday with that free baseball smoke you don't want that smoke. And I'm not going to crowdsource you or Patreon, but I do have some great merchandise lined up, ready to hit the streets if you want to give me some donations. One of the first things that I briefly hit on a few weeks ago, and I sold a few of them, they, they were these hot and cold tumbler cups. Uh, they're handmade. They came in, they, they now come in three different sizes. And the reason I really didn't pimp them out harder a few weeks ago was because I was waiting for that second cup to come along. The second cup is the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Cup, and I love it. It's absolutely gorgeous. It has the face of my brand on the cup, the great one, Roberto Clemente. Beautiful red and white marble finish. Uh, the perfect compliment for my Backwards K-Pod cup that is also available now. 
And again, I will never charge you for the content here, not even bonus shows. I give you those for free all the time. But if you would like to make a donation to the show, pick up one or two of these awesome cups, help the snake support his family by doing what he loves to do more than anything else in the world. That's Doug Baseball to you awesome cements. I will have the details very soon at diamondsnakej.podbean.com, our Twitter page at back underscore K underscore podcast, uh, the TikTok page that I spoke of earlier. Uh, with Gage, uh, it, it's TikTok. What, what are you working on right now? First of all, right now we got Instagram pretty much done. Okay, um, it's backwards K podcast, just like all the rest of them. Lowercase B though. Okay, um, feel free to go check it out now. We're accepting followers. It is public. Uh, hopefully, we'll be verified within the week. All right, sounds great, man. So, um, that'd be great, man. I I, I take solace. You know, look, man. Here's the thing. I hate asking you guys for anything, but, you know, it's the nature of the beast here in podcasting. I, I, I take solace in the fact that I work hard for the audience, and I'm not digging in their pockets without delivering that top-shelf liquor. You feel me? I mean, that's weekend and week out. I, don't, I haven't never missed a week yet. And, you know, look, plus, these, these cups are really cool. I mean, they really are. Uh, if you'd like to donate another way, that's fine. You know, I, I, I whatever, man. Uh, please rate and review my performance as you see fit. I ain't skirt. If you listen to BKP on on a platform like Apple, Spotify, please take five seconds of your time and hook a good brother up. Just another way to keep the show viable as listen, uh, listen, shares, and downloads. Uh, it kind of moves backwards, K-Pod, up these Google search engines. And, again, it puts food on the table. As some of you can tell, uh, put food on the table is going to be like a big theme for me this year. I'm in discussion for magnets, keychains, all kinds of cool stuff. So keep an eye out. All donations are appreciated. So I think that about covers it. I want to thank everyone for the world. Uh, the words and the reviews on last week's show, the 1989 World Series. I enjoyed listening to everyone recall, recall where they were, that fateful Game 3 that was interrupted by the mighty Loma Prieta earthquake. And my man Cecil down in Florida, he messaged me and said, you keep putting out shows like that, you'll be globally in the top 5% by July. And that's what I want to hear. And, and he's, of course, referring to the fact that BKP is the top 10% globally for listens and downloads. He's probably right that, that uh, you know, that's a hard bar to beat every time was that show last week. I'm really, really proud of it. Um, it was challenging. It was rewarding. And bringing it all together was, you know, uh, you know, I, I literally cried writing that show last week. I mean, it was, it was really hard to, to bring back some of those memories. Uh, the truth is, uh, shows like that, they kind of write themselves. And, you know, it's my responsibility to kind of make that delivery, you know, work. And, folks, I swear, this is it. But... It's hard to keep top and bangers at the bangers. Eventually, you run out of bangers, right? You know, so many of you know me. I, I love wrestling. And, you know, especially the old school. You, you like wrestling? Oh, yeah. Love oh, it. man. Stone Cold, right? Oh, definitely. Undertaker. Of course. All the Texas boys. I knew it. I knew it. Um, you know, you guys know I, I love wrestling. And one of the things that ruined the WWF attitude there is eventually they just went too far overboard. I mean, they're chopping off PPs at the end of pay-per-views. You feel me? So, yeah, you know, you, you can't just keep putting out bangers after bangers. There's an ebb and flow to my style. I like to think I take my audience through every emotion of, uh, you know, these set of stories and all. And I try not to load up on too many bangers in a row because, you know, my biggest podcasting fears is letting you know my fans down uh sometimes after a crazy story like that you gotta let the mar- that kind of marinate marinate inside the cerebellum um and i think that's the course i'm gonna run this week so with that strategy of mine i thought i would rein it in a little bit take a little look at something um fun as i will be giving you the history of mlb mascots and it's funny. I'm really not the kind of guy that listens to other baseball pods. I, I, I promise you, I'm not. First of all, I don't want my narrative to consciously or subconsciously mirror that of another podcaster. That's just out of respect. I stay in my lane, and you guys can always know that what you hear from me is my original thoughts, takes, and research. Number two, let's face it, it's 
it's a competitive business, you know, this podcasting. I, I don't really need to listen to anyone in this field because I'm here to win it, you know, my way. I respect anyone in this business who can hold an audience. Many people think they can do that until they have to do it. So while I respect you, I'm a competitor and I play to win. I listen to a lot of these different pods, mostly, you know, history and science stuff. That's what I listen to, but never other baseball shows. So with that being said, I did get on Spotify this week and listen to a couple of minutes of these MLB mascot shows. And it was all the same horseshit. Johnny Baseball and his co-host, you know, they rate the current mascots. I mean, just lazy, anecdotal horseshit pods. I'm sorry, but if you're a sports guy talking rank- rankings of any kind, I kind of lose respect for the show. I, I really do. It's a nutless monkey can put that show together. So, after listening to all those different mascot shows, I'm proud to say that this show is way different than any of the other mascot shows I heard in the podverse. Um, you know, why would you, I just ask you, why would any of you care where I rank a fucking mascot? I mean, it's just stupid. Uh, we do things different here at BKP. I'm, I'm going to give you the history and an overview of all the current mascots in the majors. And here's the thing. When most of us think team mascots as adults, or you know, as we're growing into adulthood, and all their spirited, energetic, and also bizarre behavior. It's, it's hard to imagine them being anything more than the costumed marketing ploy that they are today. However, comma, the mascot phenomenon it began actually in the 1880s. And according to an 1883 issue of Sporting Life magazine, one of the traveling vagabond teams trying to go to the sport, they had a little boy named Chick. He was carrying bats, running errands for the team, and he became known as the team's good luck charm. The the players on the team had actually pinned their hopes and faith into uh, Chick's luck-bringing qualities. And it was exactly those so-called good qualities, and of course the usual baseball superstition, that kind of laid the foundation for what has now become the goofy, lovable, modern-day mascots that we see today in baseball. The role in standing of the mascot has evolved through the years to the point now where mascots play a pivotal role in the communities uh, that these teams reside in, while, while also providing a marketing tool. Mascots essentially tell the team's story, and you know they, they tell the teams uh, they talk about the team's culture and they connect to the fan and the players. In simpler terms, the mascot serves as a conduit between fan and team as the mascot, much like the fan, is in it for the long haul. Players may jump ship for other teams, GMs, managers move on, but the loyal mascot like the loyal fan, stays loyal. You, you can't trade a mascot. The mascot doesn't go to home when the going gets tough. He sticks like the fan. Usually the same mascot your grandparents laughed along with and grew up with is, you know, kind of the same today with a few minor alterations, save for, uh, you know, the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, some of today's fans are, are prickly trolls. <laughs> we all know it, right? But... The mascot is always there to remind you that baseball is a game and you probably shouldn't take games so life or death serious, right? And while we usually look at mascots as harmless goodwill ambassadors for their teams, there have been a few derived from racist tropes that have offended and it's started to be done away with as the world becomes small enough to fit in the palm of our hands. Some teams, mostly amateur in college, have opened their eyes to the world around them. Professional sports teams, they've been a little slower in evolving. After all, pro sports is about huge money. The owner of these teams, they, they run a business that's, that's generated on profits as their bottom line, as any successful company should be. Mascots and the team name generate vast amounts of wealth for teams today, and the owners and CEOs will be dragged, kicking and screaming before they succumb to, you know, the challenge uh, to their profit margins. That's facts. Here in the 21st century, mascots have come a long way since Chicky Baby, Charlie O, the Donkey, Weary Willie, the Dodgers. 
I, I think to better understand our unconditional love for our personal mascot, I want to start at the beginning of this word mascot and recognize recognize some trailblazers in the industry. Okay, so the earliest recognition of the word in the mainstream, according to my research, is the 1880 French opera La Mascotte. Now that's spelled M-A-S. C-O-T-T-E. And it's a French opera. It's about an Italian farmer struggling with his crops until this beautiful and virginal woman named Bettina visits. As soon thereafter, the farmer's crops and fortunes, they turn around. And it was deemed that as long as Bettina remained a virgin, she would be his good luck charm for his fruitful harvest. Now eventually all things go wrong, as you can imagine. So that's the very first use of the word mascot. It's a French opera in 1880. Here in America, the word mascot would evolve into its own current day American English spelling due to the sporting life and New York Times. Now, follow me here. In 1886, issue of Sporting Life, the writer refers to the Boston Browns baseball team. It says, Little Nicky is the luckiest man in the country and he is certainly the Browns mascot. Now, the way he spelled it, he dropped the E at the end for the first time. It's still got the two T's there, right? So, the next year, the New York Times follows suit, and they drop the second T in the word when they reference a boy named Charlie Gallagher, who was said to have been born with teeth, <laughs> and is guaranteed to possess all the genuine charms of a real-life mascot. So, in two years after this opera, La Mascotte, Americans have taken it. They made it less metric system-y, right? Meaning, you know, foreign, and made it their own. Now, from what I can tell, the early mascots were usually live children or animals. And I must confess, it's not entirely clear who was the first human, but I'm going to go with Chicky Baby here. Considering he is linked to the first time, as I see that word after that French opera in 1880. As far as the first animal reference I could find, well, the 1885 Cincinnati Inquirer wrote about a goat that was wandering around the stadium and interacting with the Rednecks team. The Inquirer states that he is the best man mascot anyone could ever ask for. That's in 1885, Cincinnati Inquirer. It is entirely possible that the very first live animal mascot for any sport was Handsome Dan, a bulldog that belonged to a member of the Yale class of 1892. Handsome Dan is still the official mascot today, albeit now on its 18th version. So, in the late 19th, early 20th century, the mascots are mostly live human children and animals. It would take several years before our current costume mascots began making their way onto the sports scene. And that's thanks in part to guys like Jim Henson and his groundbreaking Muppets who captured the imagination of people around the world just by humanizing his almost larger-than-life characters. The first mascot to actually make a career of it in Major League Baseball. This is the first professional was Max Packin, the clown prince of baseball. Packin was a former pitcher playing for a White Sox minor league affiliate during World War II. He played on the Navy team and he participated in games all around the country for morale and to push war bonds. The story goes on that one time facing Jolton Joe DiMaggio in Hawaii, he served up a dong and without warning, Packin follows DiMaggio around the bases, mocking his trot, and exaggerating and mocking the look on Joe's serious face. The crowd went all Savannah Bananas for this display, and the clown prince was born. He would take that, uh, you know, shtick, and off-the-cuff, impromptu DiMaggio trot, and turn it into five decades of hilarity and entertaining baseball fans across America. But Packett never wore a costume when doing a shtick. So, while Packin can lay claim to being to having the title of the, the first professional mascot, it wasn't until the late 1960s when we finally start to see the live co costume characters that we are all so familiar with in our sports lexicon today, including baseball. 
the shift from live to costume mascots in baseball? Well, it was spearheaded by Mr. Met in 1964. And he would soon be followed by Brutus Buckeye of the Ohio State Buckeyes in 1965. And that's when the idea really began to take hold as the 70s would take this newfound love to even higher heights. The San Diego Chicken, he set the sports world on fire. I mean, he's my personal favorite. His antics were crazy. He came out in 1974. He's followed by the Phillies Fanatic, who was launched in 1977. So we can see the 70s was the decade where the costume mascot explodes on the scene and they begin to morph into our modern-day heroes. And as characters are developed, Teams began using these characters to promote or identify with not just the team name, but also with the important local or regional traits within the community and the state. For example, the Milwaukee Brewers, Bernie's, uh, the, the Bernie Brewer design was inspired by an actual fan. Uh, his name was Milt Mason, who once, he once stood at top Old County Stadium in the 1970s, vowing to not come down until the dream to the team drew 40,000 fans to a game. And Bernie reflects the city's long and storied history in beer making, of course, German descent, German beer. Now, it still holds to this day. Whenever a brewer drops dog, Bernie slides down that chute and into a mug of beer. And while team mascots have found innovative ways to capitalize on history and culture within the communities, I sometimes wonder what kind of uh, drugs and hallucinogens some of these creators were involved in when they conceptualized their vision. While the older mascots of the 70s and 80s were true brand recognition mascots who brought the history and connection to the team, uh, many of these newer mascots today, they, they've become very outlandish, missing link types who, upon sight, they really have no connection whatsoever to the team name. Some, you know, uh, some of them are, are like that. Or they have, you know, they don't have regional traits whatsoever. Not that that's a bad thing, because I love some of these new uh, mascot concepts that are out. But look, if they provide entertainment to the old and young, and more importantly to the front office revenue, it doesn't matter as much if the appearance has uh, connections. For example, Orbit for the Astros. I watched a lot of tape this week on him. I'm not sure what he is, but man, oh man, is he entertaining. Truly innovative 21st century shit. It doesn't really matter what he is. That thing connects to the Astros faithful, and I totally see why. The marking of mascots is, is a big deal these days. When the chicken and the fanatic were breaking ground in the 70s, no one could have envisioned the money-making ventures. Mascots would have, you know, nearly 50 years later. When they first hit the scene... There were three major television networks. Now you got cable, satellite, social media, the internet to make, to, to, to make, create, and market your mascot. Now, with that being said, it's truly hard to quantify the amount of revenue a mascot can provide for their team. There, there's just not enough data. And if there is, I'm just not that smart enough to see it, I guess. But... I will say this, back in 2016, Forbes Magazine, they did a ranking of the top mascots in the big leagues, and it gave a small sample size of how lucrative the mascot game, the mascot game has become. The rankings were determined by merchandise sales, social media followers, and news media hits. And according to this Forbes article, 2016, that I read, the Phillies fanatic is the number one grossing mascot. He's generating nearly 10% of all overall, of all retail sales at Citizen Bank Park. That's an even bigger piece of the pie than many of the players. The Fanatics' power in Filthy is nearly incomparable as the ageless magic of this character continues to inspire and astound like no other mascot in the game. No matter your feelings about the Phillies, the fanatic has become a national treasure to baseball fans of any persuasion. Unfortunately, all this revenue generated by team mascots can affect decisions to hold on to outdated and offensive ideas. Uh, in regards to, 
team spirit, for example. And I know this is a slippery slope for many, but it can't be ignored. The classic appropriation of indigenous American iconography of fierceness and tribalism leading to the characterization of Native Americans. It's steeped in stereotypes, campy cartoon-like characters, and in some cases just outwardly racist image, right? The Redskins and the NFL, the Cleveland Indians, they wrestled with this for years before changing their team names. Under pressure by Native American Native groups, uh, you know, who began speaking out in the 90s about their concerns. But, you know, the boomers in power back then, they didn't care enough to listen, you know, to listen, let alone change. Only when the corporate sponsors threatened to pull out did these two franchises uh, decide to go in a different direction and join the new millennium. But look, this is where it gets tricky. Most of us become fans at an early age. Mascots are a big part of the indoctrination of our kids. So, when the team decides to bow to so-called cancel culture and do a brand change, some fans do not react well, and they become angry. The association with the mascot, it's it's hard to give up for the fan. I, I totally understand it. You know, you've had it one way all your life. And that is regardless of... Any offense that might be taken by marginalized people in our society. And it doesn't necessarily mean the fan is not apathetic or that they're racist. To some fans, he's our mascot. Leave him the hell alone. And that's fair. But, on the flip side, look. The Commanders, the Guardians... They're still raking in cash. It doesn't look like either one of those teams is suffering from the name change and the mascot change. Which was surely the reason both of these teams stubbornly fought the evolution, right? Teams don't want to fuck with their bottom line. So, while some mascots will be lost to history and newfound cultural sensitivities, their legacies are preserved for eternity in the Mascots Hall of Fame located in the small town of Whitburg, Indiana. And it currently boasts over 20 mascots from all sports, including Mr. Met, the Sandio Chicken, the Philly Fanatic, the Oriole Bird, the Pittsburgh Parrot, and others. And the hall was actually founded, this one in Whitburg, Indiana, it's found by the Philly Fanatic creator, David Ray, uh, Raymond. And the building is now under construction right now. And I thought it would be kind of cool to run through all the current MLB mascots, and I'll give you a little backstory on each one, because behind every mascot, there is a backstory, and there is someone who designed it for a reason, and some of these mascots have a fictional origin story, like superheroes, and let's start with the Halos, they are one of three teams, along with the Dodgers and the Yankees, who do not have an official mascot, but they do have the rally monkey for good luck. The monkey was born June of 2000 when the Angels rallied to beat San Francisco after being introduced uh, to the monkey on the stadium video board. And it really took off during the Angels' 2002 World Series victory against those very same Giants. The Astros, they got orbit. And throughout the 80s, the team had Chester Charge. He was a soldier in the Texas Cavalry. However, 1990, the Strohs decided to, you know, scrap that one. They figured a new mascot might be a little better way to connect to all of Houstonians. So they assigned the new mascot task to the brightest people in all of Houston, the children. Over 10,000 elementary students submitted um, designs for Orbit, but... The ultimate act of everyone is is a winner was the final appearance of Orbit. Because now what you see today is this actual composite uh, of all 10,000 participants. And I kind of find that interesting. And I would explain how I never knew what the hell he was. He, he was replaced by Junction Jack in 2000, but he returned in 2013. And Gage, let me turn to you and ask you a question here. Uh, in three words or less, what are your feelings about the Houston Astros as a, as a Texas Rangers fan? I hate them. Very good. The Oakland A's have Stomper, and its original story goes to the beginning of the 20th century when the Athletics played in Filthy, 
Giants manager John McGraw, he referred to the A's as white elephants, which was kind of like this term for a burdensome, extravagant gift. And it is said that the ancient king of Siam used to give albino elephants that's a hard word, albino elephants to those who displeased him. While an elephant may seem like a generous gift, you would think, the king knew that the cost of upkeep would usually financially ruin those that he gave the gift to. So manager Connie Mack, he reappropriated the animal into a rally cry and a good luck charm. And in 1997, the A's introduced the lovable Stomper. I like Stomper. Uh, Toronto, they got Ace the Blue Jay. And he's a family man. Or a bird. When, when he was introduced, he, he originally came with like this winking wife, Diamond. Her personality was, uh, his personality is based on Jim Carrey. And the wife was loosely designed after Goldie Hawn. Uh, two Canadian boys. Diamond was retired in uh, 2004, and a few years later, Ace would introduce his son, Junior, to the baseball universe. The Braves have blooper, and I have no idea what he is. He's kind of a cross between my grandmother's carpet in her living room in the 70s and, like, a strangely shaped humanoid of some kind. And he was introduced as a lab creation, which, you know, it looks like it. With modern uh, mascot-appropriate traits... And, but look, he loves his bravos, and he's a good performer. Very entertaining. Milwaukee has the iconic Bernie Brewer. And I told you a story earlier how he was created. Brewers fan Milton Mason, who sat atop County Stadium with a pretty sweet setup. He had a trailer with a fridge, a stove, a TV, and even an exercise bike. He remained in like this little makeshift homestead for 40 days until a promotional uh, bat giveaway day brought 40 grand into the Brewers' crib. After that win, Mason swung down from his perch on a rope. I suffered severe rope burn and a few broken bones. <laughs> in 1973, after Milt Mason's death, the Brewers commemorated him with the creation of Bernie Brewer. He was retired in 1984, two years after the World Series appearance by the Brewers, but he would be brought back by popular demand in 1993. And for the life of me, I, I can't figure out why Milwaukee retired him in the first place. I mean, especially so quickly after a World Series appearance, Bernie Brewer is a baseball mascot icon for sure. The Cardinals have traditional old school Fred Bird. Well, they call him Fred Bird the Red Bird. And he's been around since 1979. Not really much to explain. He's a fitting mascot for St. Louis, a humanoid cardinal whose beauty is in his simplicity. The Cubs have Clark the Cub to represent that team uh, that plays in its home games on Clark and Addison. And given the age of the North Chicago Club, you may think that Clark has been around for a while, but he hasn't. In fact, Clark the Club became the first official mascot in Cubs history in 2014. Now, the origin story goes like this. Clark is a descendant of Joa. Joa was the team team's live bear mascot back in 1916. They used to have him in a cage outside the uh, Rigged Field. Uh... Now get this now. Joel originally escaped from the nearby Lincoln's Park Zoo and he followed the roar of the crowd to the friendly confines of Wrigley. That's how he winded up there. And this uh, Clark the Cub, he's a descendant of Joel. That's his backstory. Okay. The Snakes, they got D. Baxter the Bobcat, which... May surprise some people, right? I mean, why wouldn't the Diamondbacks just have a snake for a mascot? Well, the idea for D. Baxter the Bobcat was actually conceived by former Snakes infielder Jay Bell's son, Brantley Bell. And the reason for the Bobcat was based on the fact that Chase Field, home of the Arizona Diamondbacks, was originally called Bank One Ballpark, or the Bob for short. And the Bobcat is indigenous native of Arizona, so it kind of works on many, many levels. It really does. The San Francisco Giants, they got Lucille, which is a tribute to the San Francisco Seals, a minor league team in the prestigious and baseball-rich Pacific Coast League from 1903 to 1957. 
It is also a reference to the harbor seals that reside in the Bay Area year-round. And, by the way, his full name is Luigi Francisco Seal. So, apparently, he's Italian, just like hometown hero Joe DiMaggio. The Cleveland Guardians, they got Slider. He was created in 1990 when the White's president, Dennis Lehman, ordered the team to create a mascot in the Philly Fanatic vein. Uh, it has a jiggly belly, an elongated nose, and the similarities are, are easily apparent. The team has overtly classified Slider as a member of the Animal Kingdom. However, given the fact that it has been recently revealed that the Fanatic is a bird, it's safe to say Slider is probably one as well. The Mariner Moose in Seattle, and I love this mascot, always have. After the 1989 season, over 10,000 suggestions for a new mascot were presented to the organization. The final choices were a sea monster and a moose, and the moose won. The Mariner Moose was originally suggested by a fifth grader named Ahmad Spiller. Both he and the elementary school that he attended, they received $1,000 for the idea of the Mariner Moose. Miami has another one of my favorites, Billy the Marlin. He's been with the team since its inaugural 1993 season. He had all those great spots on ESPN back in the 90s, uh, pimping out the Sports Center uh, commercials. The team was also named, uh, the team was actually almost named the Flamingos, which, holy shit, that would have been bad. That would have been even harder selling Miami than the Marlins have been. Mr. Met, the founding father of the newfound modern mascot game. His first appearance was in 1963. Uh, he was dead. at that point. He was a C- he was a cartoon character in a season program. When the team moved from the Polo Grounds to Shea Stadium, following that year, Mister Met came to life in the form of a costume mascot, forever changing the game. In print form, Mister Met was depicted with a family consisting of himself, Missus Met, and three little baby Mets. Missus Met was introduced as a costume mascot in 1975. The Nationals, they have screeched the bald eagle. Fitting that our nation's capital baseball team's mascot is one by the people, uh, of the people, and for the people. Screech is a result of a contest in 2003, and the winning idea came from fourth grader Glenda Gutierrez, who claimed that Screech is a powerful bird that will eat almost anything, including stadium hot dogs, I gotta think. He was hatched from an egg in center field of Nationals Park. He joins the Washington Capitals hockey team and the D.C. United soccer team as the third team in the district to have an Eagle represent their team, which I find that ironic. I guess that wouldn't work with the football team, right? You know, considering there's already an Eagles team in that that fucking division. Uh, uh, You know, three words or less. Uh, What do you feel about uh, the Eagles? I hate them. Right on. The Orioles, they got the bird. As a diehard fan of my beloved Orioles, the bird is obviously my favorite. He's brought me many great memories in my life. I think the one thing I'll never forget was introducing my daughter to the bird at her first Orioles game when she was like three. I'll never forget the look on her face of curiosity and utter amazement as he played with her. And I'm sure many of you, you you may have the same experience, you know, or memory with your mascot. The Orioles is the state bird of Maryland. Before he received his physical body, the Oriole was featured on team caps beginning in 1966. Like the National Screech, the bird was hatched from a giant egg during the 1979 season. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was on top of the dugout. A truly magical season of Baltimore that year. So yeah, the Pirates you know, gave us the finger. And what I still wonder, how many positive ways that that bird impacted that crazy 1979 season? I mean, one of my favorite baseball seasons as a kid. San Diego and their swinging friar. It was a creation of another fan contest to design the mascot. Naval Seaman Apprentice Carlos Hadaway, and he too, for Christ's sake, he came out uh, with a few designs, and the Padres adopted one of those designs, being the bald on top prior tuck look, and ironically, this was not originally a contest for the Major League Padres. This was a contest for the 1961 Fathers of the PCL. The Padres loved 
Uh, Hadaway's risen so much that they took it to the major leagues when they joined the fraternity in 1969. And Philly has the beast of mascots. Arguably, many unbiased people would say, either him or the chicken, San Diego chicken, they're the greatest mascots ever. They could change. You know, a lot of these younger mascots are really good. They are really, really good. Uh, unlike many cities, Philly didn't have a contest to choose the winner. They instead turned to a visionary who was changing the television landscape with his expanding cast of colorful characters at the time. They reached out to Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Sesame Street. Ironically at first, though, the Phil's front office, they weren't enamored with the chubby green thing. Uh, that Henson had presented to them. So instead of buying the copyright, they leased the the, the design for years without copyrights in in a wait-and-see kind of approach. They could have purchased the rights for a mere $5,200, which is about $126,000 in the 2023 economy. Three years later, they spent $500,000, which now has the purchasing power of $1.9 million here in 2023. The Phillies' initial skepticism was clearly misplaced, as Jim Henson proved, he you know he knew what the hell he was doing, and the fanatic has stood the test of time. Also, again, the fanatic is a bird. I, I, I it just cracks me up. The pirates took note of their Keystone State neighbors and decided they needed to get in on the mascot game as well. The Pittsburgh parrot was thinner and angrier than the the, the current uh, itinerary iteration, and. It must have been all that coke he was doing in the clubhouse. Uh, after the original parent was fired for drug use and distribution of cocaine out of the Pirates clubhouse. That's right. You heard me. Did you know that? I did not know that. Oh, uh, well, you got to go back to the archives, baby. I'm telling you. Craziest one of the... I'm just absolutely crazy. That's right. You heard me. The Pirate mascot was selling yayo out of the locker room, y'all. That's a story I did last year around this time here at BKP. It's called the Pittsburgh Drug Trials. An absolutely insane story if you haven't heard it. You need to go back in the archives or any of my podcast platforms and get on on that for sure. Or you can turn that over to my website, diamondsnakejtopbobby.com, to hear that or any of the other stories in my multiple archives. So, anyway, after the original parrot is fired, he is replaced with... A uh, fatter, goofier, more colorful parrot in an effort to appeal to kids as well as to put that whole sordid affair behind them that I was telling you about. Here's your team, the Rangers. The Rangers are, of course, they're inspired by the uh, Texas Rangers Law Enforcement Agency that keeps the state of Texas safe. The mascot's name is Captain. He is a Palomino horse and he, he is this nod to the image of the old Western Law Enforcement Cowboy he proudly wears the number 72 to commemorate the year that the Washington Senators moved from D.C. to Arlington. And I got to assume that you love this mascot. Tell me some something that you were, you know about this mascot, experience that you've had with uh, this Palomino captain here. Well, Jake, my favorite thing about this mascot is uh, we, in fact, share a birthday together. Wow, all right. We were both born in 2002, which means... Uh, yeah, we share a birthday. That's the best thing I can give you, honestly. That, that is awesome. Uh, did you have any interaction with him or anything? Well, I remember one of my buddies back in third grade, his birthday party, uh-huh. um, they got the mascot out, and, and I just, for some reason, I remember the parents being against it. Wow. They, 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 I couldn't tell you why. I just remember <laughs> it being a negative thing that he was there. And my what, parents when were was like, this about? What was this about? What year around? Oh, it had to have been 07, wow. 08. Wow, that's interesting. And uh, I, I still don't understand it to this day. I also <laughs> asked my dad to see, see what was going on yeah, back yeah, there in 07, it, 08. Why don't you ask him about that and get back to me on that? That's funny, man. That's cool. But uh, you feel a connection to the to the captain? Oh, yeah, no doubt. Awesome. I awesome. feel a connection because of the Rangers. Right, right on. 100%. He's your conduit, right? Exactly, that's exactly. Right. The Tampa Rays have Raymond. And I love this mascot, too. Another one of those mascots that can be identified as whatever your imagination will allow. Uh, according to the Tampa Bay Press Guide, Raymond is like a sea dog native to the Gulf of Mexico. He is known scientifically in the animal kingdom as Canis Manta What the Fluffalus. Uh, is fuzzy beard. It resembles that of a walrus. And for me, 
has large belly evokes like the image of a manatee. So, the Cincinnati Reds, Reds, they have had two very similar similar humanoid-type mascots with giant baseball heads, much like Mr. Met. Uh, this is The first one was a clean-shaven Mr. Red, and then there was a mustachioed Mr. Redleg. And both of them can trace their roots back to the anti-communist scare of the 1950s when the Republican Party leaders were running around town accusing everyone and their grandmothers of being commies in the country. And decades later, we regard this as silly, but if you look close, both of these parties still employ that same bullshit, you know, talking points to keep us divided. In 1953, Cincinnati announced that they wanted the team to be known as Red Legs to distance itself from the McCarthy witch hunt going on in the country for communists. And these communists were also called Reds after the Soviet flag. The original design had the mascot wearing a red stocking jersey, which is baseball's first pro team. The first live Mr. Red took the field in 1973, but he would be replaced in the late 1980s by owner Marge Schott and her St. Bernard dog named Shotzi. She also had a couple of Shotzi's after that. That first one died, I remember. Uh, clean-shaven Mr. Met, he returned in 1997, and he was replaced by the mustachioed version 10 years later in 2007. The clean-shaved Mr. Red returned in 2012, and Senator McCarthy can rest easy. The two have lived together in pretty much communist-free harmony ever since. The Red Sox mascot is Wally the Green Monster. He's a green monster. He's named after the giant wall that occupies left field of Fenway Park. And According to his origin story, Wally has resided in the wall since 1947 in like this hermit-like existence. And for 50 years, he, he was, uh, he was, you know, he kept himself in the wall and away from people. Now, uh, when he was introduced in, uh, 1997, he was greeted with a loud chorus of boos from the Fenway faithful. Uh, but thanks in part to former Red Sox broadcaster Jerry Remy, rest in peace, Wally has since become family to the New England natives. Uh, Remy loved Wally, and before his death, you could see stuffed Wallys throughout his booth during games all the time. And if it's good enough for Rem Dog, then it's pretty much good enough for every member of the Red Sox fucking nation. The, uh, the Colorado Rockies have Dinger, the dinosaur. And some might ask, uh, you know, why a dinosaur as the Rockies mascot? Well, there have been a number of dinosaurs discovered in Denver throughout the years, but the true inspiration of Dinger is derived from the dinosaur fossils that were found on the Coors Field site when the construction was underway for the new crib. Did you know that? I did know that. That's awesome stuff. And it wasn't a major find or anything. It was, you know, um, not nothing, you know, truly impressive. Not like they found a skull or anything. The fossils to this day, they're all housed in a box that's just big enough to hold a watch. But it was enough to inspire the creation of Dinger during its first month of the second season. The Rockies announced the discovery of the dinosaur egg during construction of Coors Field. The National Guard carried the giant egg into Maha Stadium, where they played before Coors to the tune of Wild Thing. And out popped Dinger. And the rest is history. The Royals had the lion slugger, uh, the lion, they had the lion named Slugger. And, you know, the lion is the king of the jungle, so it's fitting that he would be crowned as their mascot. And bottom line, of all the mascots in baseball, I wouldn't mess with Slugger. I mean, he's in the best shape, bar none. I love that mascot. He looks like he can whip a little ass. He's exaggerated, and he plays off his royalty well. But I'm going to tell you right now, next time you see Slugger, look at him guns, baby. He's packing guns. He's a young gunner. The Tigers, they got the mascot paws, which is a tiger, of course. Many people ask just... What the hell do Tigers have to do with Detroit Michigan Lions? I mean, what does it have to do? It's not like they walk around the, st the streets of the Motor City, according to my research. I couldn't find one reason, but I did uncover a, a couple of local theories. One suggests that they were named Tigers because of their penchant of wearing orange and black striped, striped socks back in the day. And the other plausible explanation is that the name Tigers is in an homage to the Detroit light guard of the Civil War, who their legendary fighting tactics were compared to Tigers because of their ferocity. In 1980 and 1981, the Twins had a mascot called Twinkie the Loon, which literally scared the shit out of kids and parents alike. It was so bad, and probably verified 
Uh, it probably terrified the Twins to ever get back in the mascot game as a result of that awful Twinkie the Loon. Minnesota went without a mascot until 2000 when the T.C. Bear was introduced. The T.C. stands for Twin Cities, of course, and a nod to St. Paul and Minneapolis. And finally, we have the South Side Fox, uh, the South Side White Sox with South Paul as their champion. And there seems to be this thing now where teams try to explain what their mascot is. The Fanatic is a bird. Raymond is a sea dog. Bernie is a beer aficionado man. The White Sox are like, fuck that. He's a big, fuzzy, green dude. Or at least that's what he, that's pretty much what he exactly said in last year's press guide for the team. You figure it out. I should mention again, the Yankees, Dodgers, Halos, they don't have an official mascot, but that wasn't always the case with the Yankees. After seeing the success of the Fanatic, the Yankees designed a furry, lovable creature of their own. But instead, they got the Kmart version of the Fanatic. There was this pinstripe dude with wild hair and a mustache, and his name was Dandy. The Yankees fans, they were both confused, irritated, and vexed by Dandy. They hated him. From day one, they couldn't stand him. When Yankees catcher, the heartbeat of the team, Thurman Munson, died in a plane crash in 1979, someone noticed how similar the mascots looked, like the former fallen Bronx captain. And George Steinbrenner did away with the failure of a concept. Now, there are seven teams that are currently members of the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Slugger of the Royals. The San Diego Chicken, who's probably my favorite ever. I did a story here on Big KP last year about the kids' baseball show from the 80s, The Baseball Bunch. And in that show, I gave a mini bio on Ted Giannoulis and the San Diego Chicken. By all means, check that out as well. It's on all pod platforms or at diamondsnakejake.poppy.com if you haven't heard that baseball bunch show. Back to Hall of Fame mascots. Can't put anyone in over the Phillies fanatic. Of course, besides maybe the chicken, that's probably the best. Mr. Met, the godfather that started it all in major leagues because, you know, why not? The Mets were trying to get kids in there. Well, he's in. The Bird of Baltimore, my champion, he's in. Slider from the Guardians and the White Sox, Southpaw, are both in as well. So, you got seven modern mascots in the hall. I'd like to nominate two other mascots who I feel like should be in. Number one, the Pittsburgh Parrot. And number two, Houston's Orbit. Uh, to me, he's just one of the best mascots going into the game right now. I love watching his antics and his pranks. He pulls up fans. Both of these mascots deserve it to me. How about you? What do you think? Uh, what do you think about Orbit? I mean, from an unbiased view, what do you think about him as a as a uh, uh, a mascot? From purely just a mascot standpoint, I think it's phenomenal. <laughs> he is right. I think okay, it's, I think it's that's awesome, man. It's everything a mascot needs to be and what people want it to be. Absolutely, man. I thought I was like kind of laying out on this limb, but I don't know. No, man, no. he does awesome work. I love that freaking mascot, man. It's crazy. So. To close this show out, it's important to note that there have been stumbles along the way with teams learning from the growing pains of all-putting or downright Twinkie the Loon scary creations. Sometimes these missteps have led to teams abandoning the mascot concept altogether, like the Yankees and the Dodgers, Weary Williams, real-life characters from them bum days back in Brooklyn. Other teams have finally moved on from racist overtones that marginalized certain people as mere characters. Like the Braves with Blooper. Mascots can be charming connection between the fans and the team. But like all aspects of baseball history, it has not been without failings. You know, such as the ridiculous uh, Chief Yokohama that the Braves had living in a teepee beyond the outfield wall back in the 70s at Fulton, Fulton County Stadium. And it's important to never forget the good as well as recognize the bad. That's how we get better. And while mascots may be meant to appeal mostly to kids... Like the game of baseball itself, mascots bring out the kid in all of us. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to end it. I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up. I want to thank you, stimulating seam heads, for dropping by this week. I hope you enjoyed listening this week as much as I enjoyed telling you about the history of MLB mascots. I want to thank my new executive producer, Gage Dean. 
for accepting the challenge and joining our family here at BKP. Seriously, thank you, man. Welcome aboard, brother. Yes, sir. Happy to do it. Uh, there are a couple of articles of Fangrass I referred to in my research this week. A lot of video to come through on YouTube. All kinds of stuff you can look into if you want to follow up on my presentation. Please check out those tumbler cups. I'm going I'm to pimp those out tomorrow. I'd like to keep this ship afloat uh, with the shows, and it does kind of rely on donations and contributions going forward. I'm slowly figuring that shit out. If you'd like to donate... Uh, but not to, you know, if you want to donate, but not to cost the cups, you can donate a dollar or not. Just ask me how and I'll tell you. It really sucks. This is how the pod business works. I hate asking it for anything. Maybe one day I'll blow up like Joe Rogan. But it does cost me to be here every week with new shows. So I really could use a little help right now. These cups are badass. And uh, I produce weekly at a high level. So help a good brother out. And with that, folks, I chop off the head. Of our baseball hydro, only to see two more stories take its place. With MLB mascots getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I turn my attention next week to U.S. presidents in baseball. Sounds kind of interesting. I, you know, I've read articles where they think George Washington played rounders back in the day. Back in the day, you know, that's a Tuesday, by the way. In fact, there are reports of old George throwing a ball around while he and the colonial rebels were trapped by the British at Valley Forge. Picture that, right? So, I'm curious and excited to dig into that topic. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards Cave Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch with their nose in a bone looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me a few months back, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. If I'm still breathing, peace. Peace.